Chapter 6 of the Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865, by Leander Stilwell, Chapter 6, Bethel, Jackson, June and July, 1862. Soon after our occupation of Corinth, a change in the position of our forces took place, and all the command at Owl Creek was transferred to Bethel, a small station on the Mobile and Ohio Railroad, some twenty or twenty-five miles to the northwest. We left Owl Creek on the morning of June 6th, and arrived at Bethel about dark the same evening. Thanks to my repeated long walks in the woods outside of our lines, I was in pretty fair health at this time, but still somewhat weak and shaky. On the morning we took up the line of march, while waiting for the fall-in call, I was seated at the foot of a big tree in camp, with my knapsack packed at my side. Enoch Wallace came to me and said, Stillwell, are you going to try to carry your knapsack? I answered that I reckoned I had to, that I had asked Henry King, our company teamster, to let me put it in his wagon, and he wouldn't, said he already had too big a load. Enoch said nothing more, but stood silently looking down at me a few seconds, then picked up my knapsack, and threw it into our wagon, which was close by, saying to King as he did so, Haul that knapsack. And it was hauled. I shall never forget this act of kindness on the part of Enoch. It would have been impossible for me to have made the march carrying the knapsack. The day was hot, and much of the road was over sandy land, and through long stretches of blackjack barrens that excluded every breath of a breeze. The men suffered much on the march, and fell out by scores. When we stacked arms at Bethel that evening, there were only four men of Company D in line, just enough to make one stack of guns, but my gun was in the stack. There was no earthly necessity for making this march in one day. We were simply changing stations. The Confederate Army of that region was down in Mississippi, a hundred miles or so away, and there were no armed foes in our vicinity excepting some skulking bands of guerrillas. Prior to this, our regiment had made no marches except little short movements during the siege of Corinth, none of which exceeded two or three miles, and nearly all the men were weak and debilitated by reason of the prevailing type of illness, and in no condition whatever to be cracked through twenty miles or more on a hot day. We should have marched only about ten miles the first day, with a halt of about ten minutes every hour to let the men rest a little and get their wind. Had that course been pursued, we would have reached our destination in good shape, with the ranks full and the men would have benefited by the march. As it was, it probably caused the death of some and the permanent disabling of more. The trouble at that time was the total want of experience on the part of most of our officers of all grades, combined with an amazing lack of common sense 
by some of high authority. I am not blaming any of our regimental officers for this foolish forced march, for it amounted to that. The responsibility rested higher up. Our stay at Bethel was brief and uneventful. However, I shall always remember the place on account of a piece of news that came to me while we were there, and which for a time nearly broke me all up. It will be necessary to go back some years in order to explain it. I began attending the old stone schoolhouse at Otter Creek when I was about eight years old. One of my schoolmates was a remarkably pretty little girl, with blue eyes and auburn hair, nearly my own age. We kept about the same place in our studies, and were generally in the same classes. I always liked her, and by the time I was about fifteen years old, was head over heels in love. She was far above me in the social scale of the neighborhood. Her folks lived in a frame house on the other side of the creek, and were well-to-do for that time and locality. My people lived in a log cabin, on a little farm in the broken country that extended from the south bank of Otter Creek to the Mississippi and Illinois rivers. But notwithstanding the difference in our respective social and financial positions, I knew she had a liking for me, and our mutual relations became quite tender and interesting. Then the war came along, I enlisted and went south. We had no correspondence after I left home. I was just too deplorably bashful to attempt it, and on general principles didn't have sense enough to properly carry on a proceeding of that nature. It may be that here was where I fell down, but I thought about her every day and had many boyish daydreams of the future in which she was the prominent figure. Soon after our arrival at Bethel, I received a letter from home. I hurriedly opened it, anxious as usual to hear from the folks, and, sitting down at the foot of a tree, began reading it. All went well to nearly the close when I read these fatal words. Billy Crane and Lucy Archer got married last week. The above names are fictitious, but the bride was my girl. I can't explain my feelings. If you ever have had such an experience, you will understand. I stole a hurried glance around to see if anybody was observing my demeanor, then thrust the letter into my jacket pocket and walked away. Not far from our camp was a stretch of swampy land, thickly set with big cypress trees, and I bent my steps in that direction. Entering the forest, I sought a secluded spot, sat down on an old log, and read and re-read that heart-breaking piece of intelligence. There was no mistaking the words. They were plain, laconic, and nothing ambiguous about them. And to intensify the bitterness of the draught, it may be set down here that the groom was a duddish young squirt, a clerk in a country store, who lacked the pluck to go for a soldier, but had stayed at home to count eggs and measure calico. In my opinion, he was not worthy of the girl, and I was amazed that she had taken him for a husband. I remember well some of my thoughts as I sat with bitterness in my heart, alone among those gloomy cypresses. I wanted a great big battle to come off at once with the 61st Illinois right in front that we might run out of cartridges and the order would be given to fix bayonets and charge. 
Like Major Simon Suggs in depicting the horrors of an apprehended Indian war, I wanted to see blood flow in a great gulgan torrent like the Tallapoosa River. Well, it was simply a case of pure, intensely ardent boy love, and I was hit hard, but survived, and now I heartily congratulate myself on the fact that this youthful shipwreck ultimately resulted in my obtaining for a wife the very best woman, excepting only my mother, that I ever knew in my life. I never again met my youthful flame to speak to her, and saw her only once, and then at a distance, some years after the close of the war, when I was back in Illinois on a visit to my parents. Several years ago her husband died, and in the course of time she married again, this time a man I never knew, and the last I heard of or concerning her, she and her second husband were living somewhere in one of the Rocky Mountain states. For a short time after the evacuation of Corinth, Pittsburgh Landing continued to be our base of supplies, and commissary stores were wagoned from there to the various places where our troops were stationed. And it happened, while the regiment was at Bethel, that I was one of a party of about a hundred men detailed to serve as guards for a wagon train destined for the landing, and returned to Bethel with army rations. There was at the landing at this time, serving as guards for the government stores, a regiment of infantry. There were only a few of them visible, and they looked pale and emaciated, and much like dead men on their feet. I asked one of them what regiment was stationed there, and he told me it was the 14th Wisconsin Infantry. This was the one I had seen at Benton Barracks, and admired so much on account of the splendid appearance of the men. I mentioned this to the soldier, and expressed to him my surprise to now see them in such bad shape. He went on to tell me that the men had suffered fearfully from the change of climate, the water, and their altered conditions in general that they had nearly all been prostrated by camp diarrhea, and at that time there were not more than a hundred men in the regiment fit for duty, and even those were not much better than the shadows of their former selves. And judging from the few men that were visible, the soldier told the plain, unvarnished truth. Our regiment and the 14th Wisconsin soon drifted apart, and I never saw it again. But as a matter of history, I will say that it made an excellent and distinguished record during the war. On June 16th, our brigade left Bethel for Jackson, Tennessee, a town on the Mobile and Ohio Railroad, and about 35 or 40 miles by the dirt road northwest of Bethel. On this march, like the preceding one, I did not carry my knapsack. It was about this time that most of the boys adopted the blanket roll system, our knapsacks were awkward, cumbersome things, with a combination of straps and buckles that chafed the shoulders and back, and greatly augmented heat and general discomfort. So we would fold in our blankets an extra shirt with a few other light articles, roll the blanket tight, double it over, and tie the two ends together, then throw the blanket over one shoulder with the tied ends under the opposite arm, and the arrangement was complete. We had learned by this time the necessity of reducing our personal baggage to the lightest possible limit. We had left Camp Carrollton with great bulging knapsacks stuffed with all sorts of plunder, 
much of which was utterly useless to soldiers in the field. But we soon got rid of all that, and my recollection is that after the Bethel march, the great majority of the men would, in some way, when on a march, temporarily lay aside their knapsacks and use the blanket roll. The exceptions to that method, in the main, were the soldiers of foreign birth, especially the Germans. They carried theirs to the last on all occasions, with everything in them the army regulations would permit, and usually something more. Jackson, our objective point on this march, was the county seat of Madison County, and a portion of our line of march was through the south part of the county. This region had a singular interest for me, the nature of which I will now state. Among the few books we had at home was an old paper-covered copy, with horrible woodcuts, of a production entitled The Life and Adventures of John A. Murrell, The Great Western Land Pirate, by Virgil A. Stewart. It was full of accounts of cold-blooded, depraved murders and other vicious, unlawful doings. My father had known in his younger days a good deal of Murrell by reputation, which was probably the moving cause for his purchase of the book. When a little chap, I frequently read it, and it possessed for me a sort of weird, uncanny fascination. Murrell's home and the theater of many of his evil deeds during the year 1834, and for some time previously, was in this county of Madison, and as we trudged along the road on this march, I scanned all the surroundings with deep interest and close attention. Much of the country was rough and broken, and densely wooded, with high ridges and deep ravines between them. With the aid of a lively imagination, many places I noticed seemed like fitting localities for acts of violence and crime. I have in my possession now, bought many years ago, a duplicate of that old copy of Murrell we had at home. I sometimes look into it, but it no longer possesses for me the interest it did in my boyhood days. On this march I was a participant in an incident which was somewhat amusing and also a little bit irritating. Shortly before noon of the first day, Jack Medford of my company and myself concluded we would straggle and try to get a country dinner. Availing ourselves of the first favorable opportunity, we slipped from the ranks and struck out. We followed an old country road that ran substantially parallel to the main road on which the column was marching, and soon came to a nice-looking old log house standing in a grove of big native trees. The only people at the house were two middle-aged women and some children. We asked the women if we could have some dinner, saying that we would pay for it. They gave an affirmative answer, but their tone was not cordial, and they looked daggers. Dinner was just about prepared, and when all ready, we were invited, with evident coolness, to take seats at the table. We had a splendid meal, consisting of cornbread, new Irish potatoes, boiled bacon and greens, butter and buttermilk. Compared with sow belly and hardtack, it was a feast. Dinner over, we essayed to pay therefore. Their charge was something less than a dollar for both of us, but we had not the exact change. The smallest denomination of money either of us had was a dollar greenback, and the women said they had no money at all to make change. Thereupon we proffered them the entire dollar. 
they looked at it askance and asked if we had any southern or confederate money we said we had not that this was the only kind of money we had they continued to look exceedingly sour and finally remarked that they were unwilling to accept any kind of money except southern we urged them to accept the bill told them it was united states money and that it would pass readily in any place in the south occupied by our soldiers but no they were obdurate and declined the greenback with unmistakable scorn of course we kept our temper it never would have done to be saucy or rude after getting such a good dinner but for my part i felt considerably vexed there was nothing left to do except thank them heartily for their kindness and depart from their standpoint their course in the matter was actuated by the highest and most unselfish patriotism but naturally we couldn't look at it in that light i will say here with malice towards none and with charity for all that in my entire sojourn in the south during the war the women were found to be more intensely bitter and malignant against the old government of the united states and the national cause in general than were the men their attitude is probably another illustration of the truth of kipling's saying the female of the species is more deadly than the male we arrived at jackson on the evening of june seventeenth and went into camp on the outskirts of the town in a beautiful grove of tall young oaks the site was neither too shady nor too sunny and all things considered i think it was about the nicest camping ground the regiment had during its entire service we settled down here to a daily round of battalion drill being the first of that character as i now remember we had so far had a battalion drill is simply one where the various companies are handled as a regimental unit and are put through regimental evolutions battalion drill at first was frequently very embarrassing to some commanding officers of companies the regimental commander would give a command indicating in general terms the movement desired and it was then the duty of a company commander to see to the details of the movement that his company should make and give the proper orders well sometimes he would be badly stumped and ludicrous baubles would be the result as for the men in the ranks, battalion drill was as simple as any other, for we only had to obey specific commands which indicated exactly what we were to do. To form square, an antique disposition against cavalry, was a movement that was especially trying to some company officers. But so far as forming square was concerned, all our drill on that feature was time thrown away, in actual battle we never made that disposition a single time and the same is true of several other labored and intricate movements prescribed in the tactics and which we were industriously put through but it was good exercise and all went in the day's work while thus amusing ourselves at battalion drill suddenly came marching orders and which required immediate execution tents were forthwith struck rolled and tied and loaded in the wagons with all other camp and garrison equipage our knapsacks were packed with all our effects since special instructions had been given on that matter curiosity was the qui vive to know where we were going 
but apart from the fact that we were to be transported on the cars, apparently nobody knew whither we were bound. Colonel Fry was absent, sick, and Major Orr was then in command of the regiment. He was a fine officer, and withal a very sensible man, and I doubt if any one in the regiment except himself had reliable knowledge as to our ultimate destination. As soon as our marching preparations were complete, which did not take long, the bugle sounded, fall in, and the regiment formed in line on the parade ground. In my mind's eye, I can now see Major Orr in our front, on his horse, his blanket strapped behind his saddle, smoking his little briar-root pipe, and looking as cool and unconcerned as if we were only going a few miles for a change of camp. Our entire brigade fell in, and so far as we could see or learn, all of the division at Jackson, then under the command of General John A. McClemond, was doing likewise. Well, we stood there in line at ordered arms and waited. We expected every moment to hear the orders which would put us in motion, but they were never given. Finally, we were ordered to stack arms and break ranks, but were cautioned to hold ourselves in readiness to fall in at the tap of the drum. But the day wore on, and nothing was done until late in the evening, when the summons came. We rushed to the gun stacks and took arms. The Major had a brief talk with the company officers, and then, to our great surprise, the companies were marched back to their dismantled camps, and after being instructed to stay close thereto, were dismissed. This state of affairs lasted for at least two days, and then collapsed. We were told that the orders had been countermanded. We unloaded our tents, pitched them again on the old sites, and resumed battalion drill. It was then gossiped around among the boys that we actually had been under marching orders for Virginia to reinforce the Army of the Potomac. Personally, I looked on that as mere camp talk and put no confidence in it, and never found out until about fifteen years later that this rumor was a fact. I learned it in this wise. About nine years after the close of the war, Congress passed an act providing for the publication in book form of all the records, reports, correspondence, and the like, of both the Union and Confederate armies. Under this law, about 130 large volumes were published containing the matter above stated. When the law was passed, I managed to arrange to procure a set of these records, and they were sent to me from Washington as fast as printed. And from one of these volumes I ascertained that on June 28, 1862, E. M. Stanton, the Secretary of War, had telegraphed General Halleck, who was then in command of the Western Armies, as follows, quote, It is absolutely necessary for you immediately to detach 25,000 of your force and send it by the nearest and quickest route by way of Baltimore and Washington to Richmond. This is rendered imperative by a serious reverse suffered by General McClellan before Richmond yesterday, the full extent of which is not known. End quote. Rebellion Records, Series 1, Volume 16, Part 2, pages 69 and 70. In obedience to the above, General Halleck wired General McClemon on June 30th as follows, quotes, You will collect as rapidly as possible all the infantry regiments of your division and take advantage of every train to transport them to Columbus, Kentucky, and thence to Washington City, end quote. 
But that same day, June 30th, a telegram was sent by President Lincoln to General Halleck, which operated to revoke the foregoing order of Stanton's, and so the 61st Illinois never became a part of the Army of the Potomac, and for which I am very thankful. That army was composed of brave men, and they fought long and well, but in my opinion, and which I think is sustained by history, they never had a competent commander until they got U.S. Grant. So, up to the coming of Grant, their record in the main was a series of bloody disasters, and their few victories, like Antietam and Gettysburg, were not properly and energetically followed up as they should have been, and hence were largely barren of adequate results. Considering these things, I have always somehow felt it in my bones that if Mr. Lincoln had not sent the brief telegram above mentioned, I would now be sleeping in some probably unmarked and unknown grave away back in old Virginia. While at Jackson, an incident occurred while I was on picket in which Owen McGrath, the big Irishman I have previously mentioned, played an interesting part. As corporal, I had three men under me, McGrath being one, and the others were a couple of big, burly young fellows belonging to Company A. Our post was on the railroad a mile or two from the outskirts of Jackson, and where the picket line for some distance ran practically parallel with the railroad. The spot at this post where the picket stood when on guard was at the top of a bank on the summit of a slight elevation, just at the edge of a deep and narrow railroad cut. A bunch of guerrillas had recently been operating in that locality and making mischief on a small scale, and our orders were to be vigilant and on the alert, especially at night. McGrath was on duty from six to eight in the evening, and on the latter hour I notified one of the Company A men that his turn had come. The weather was bad, a high wind was blowing, accompanied by a drizzling rain, and all signs portended a stormy night. The Company A fellow buckled on his cartridge box, picked up his musket, and gave a scowling glance at the surroundings. Then, with much profanity, he declared he wasn't going to stand up on that bank. He was going down into the cut, where he could have some shelter from the wind and rain. I told him that would never do, that there he could see nothing in our front and might as well not be on guard at all. But he loudly announced his intention to stick to his purpose. The other Company A man chimed in and with many expletives declared that Bill was right, that he intended to stand in the cut too when his time came, that he didn't believe there was a secesh within a hundred miles of us anyway, and so on. I was sorely troubled and didn't know what to do. They were big hulking fellows, and either could have just smashed me with one hand tied behind him. McGrath had been intently listening to the conversation and saying nothing, but as matters were evidently nearing a crisis, he now took a hand. Walking up to the man who was to relieve him, he laid the forefinger of his right hand on the fellow's breast, and looking him square in the eyes, spoke thus, "'It's the orders of the corporal that the sentries stand here,' indicating, "'and the corporal's orders will be obeyed. Do 
you mind that now? I had stepped to the side of McGrath while he was talking, to give him my moral support, at least, and fixed my eyes on the mutineer. He looked at us in silence a second or two, and then, with some muttering about the corporal being awful particular, finally said he could stand it if the rest could, assumed his post at the top of the bank, and the matter was ended. The storm blew over before midnight, and the weather cleared up. In the morning we had a satisfying soldier breakfast, and when relieved at nine o'clock, marched back to camp with the others of the old guard, all in good humor, and with peace and harmony prevailing. But I always felt profoundly grateful to grand old McGrath for his staunch support on the foregoing occasion. Without it, I don't know what could have been done. End of chapter 6